welcome to another episode of the Armchair Theologian. I'm so excited that you're here with us today as we're going to continue with um, sort of a two, maybe three part series, maybe even a four part series at some point um, where we're talking about the sermons of Peter. Uh, the last couple Sundays, we've been preaching through the book of Acts as we're talking about the church on fire and how the Spirit of God uh, moves through the uh, the early church and how it uh, grows the church from its infancy uh, to where it needs to be. So here we are in the first uh, or second sermon of Peter as he is just finished the miracle of healing the man who was laid at the gate called Beautiful. And this is an individual who had been paralyzed for um, his entire life from birth, according to what Scripture says. And we know from chapter 4, when the trial happens, that he was like this for over 40 years. And we don't know how long he sat at that gate, but the way that the narrative is is constructed, because he is so well-known by uh, everybody that was involved in this because scripture, I mean, the book of Acts says that, you know, everybody knew him. Everybody had seen him that was in that crowd. Now, I realize that word everybody there is, is a hyperbolic statement. There's no way Peter can know for a fact that every single human being that's listened to listening to him knew this guy. But there was a, there's an element there that, that the majority of the people that were hearing this sermon saw this man and knew him as the lame man from the gate, and now this guy is walking, dancing, talking, praising God. And so there's a clear, uh, clear uh, miracle that took place. And so Peter is using that, and then drawing back to his uh, original assertion from the previous sermon from the time of the Pentecost to this. So this is the second sermon, and it's interesting that that every sermon that. Uh, that Peter speaks uh, preaches on, and I'm pretty sure. Now I can be wrong, and feel free to uh, to disagree with me and and prove me wrong. And I'll be more than happy to take a step back if I am. But I'm fairly certain that every time that one of the apostles preaches a sermon, I mean an actual sermon where they're preaching, um, they always talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the central focus, and it's where the entire sermon pivots around. Uh, when I st- first started learning how to preach, I had heroes of the faith like every preacher does and did, and one of them is Charles Spurgeon. Um, I just love his style. I love his ability to be able to um, to preach, and he's very prolific in, in the sermons and what he brought. I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of sermons, and so you can go back, and they're all written down and recorded, so you can go back and read all of his sermons, and it's just a wealth of spiritual knowledge there is phenomenal. Um, Jonathan Edwards, another one, but one thing that uh, Spurgeon always told his preachers, because he, not only was he a preacher, but he also... Uh, developed his school for preachers. And so he would teach his young men how to preach and where to preach. And he would tell them all the time that you need to bring every message back to the cross, every message back to Jesus, every message back to that. And when I was uh, early in the ministry, I loved to do children's sermons. I still do. Uh, But with COVID and everything else, we're not always able to bring the kids as close as we used to. Um, But I've always tried in my children's sermons to to make the cross the central theme. Whatever I'm talking about, I always try to bring it back to the cross. And I see that that is a I see it as a biblical model because obviously this is what Peter is doing. He's bringing everything back to Jesus and 
bring him back to the cross. And then there's a response respect, um, expected. The reality is, is either Jesus was the Messiah or he wasn't. Um, either he did die for our sins or he didn't. He either was rose, he either did raise, God either did raise him from the grave or he didn't. Um, and there isn't any middle ground here. We're talking about truth. We're talking about um, exactness of history. And if God did all these things, right? If God raised him from the dead, if Jesus died for our sins, if he was the Messiah, if all of that is true, and I believe it is, then that requires us to make a decision because you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, he was a moral teacher, but he wasn't the Messiah because he said he was the Messiah. He said he died on the cross for our sins. He is the one that said these things. So if he is making these statements, then he can't be a righteous moral teacher because if he made these statements and he was lying, then He's a liar, and he's not somebody to be trusted in this end. So you can't have it both ways. He either is or he isn't, right? And so that's what Paul, that's what Peter is trying to bring out here is the sense that, and granted, he's talking about this less than 100 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? This just happened, and now um, he's talking about this, right? Jesus, he's probably maybe 10, 15, 20 days from the, uh, the, the ascension of Jesus Christ, where Jesus met with over 400 individuals personally during his time between the resurrection and the ascension, the 40-day period that he was here. So this is all fresh in the minds of the individuals. And then this guy who's been paralyzed has been unable to worship in the house of God for his entire life because you can't go into the house of God and worship as a Jewish male if you have a physical deformity. He was incapable of worshiping. And so for the first time in his life, this man has been able to worship God. He's been able to um, to walk and to move, and he, he's now a physical, moving, living, breathing testimony of the power of Jesus Christ. So let's just dive into this, right? Let's go ahead and read the scripture, uh, the sermon that Peter preached, and then we're going to try to break it down a little bit. So here we go. So if you have your Bibles, you should be at uh, Book of Acts. You should be at chapter 3, and you should be following along as I read, starting in verse 12 through the final part in verse 26. So let's read this. Uh, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, and when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. How's that working out for you, huh? <laughs> Verse 15. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled." 
Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the pro that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets shall, who have spoken whom, from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, these final days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made for your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of earth shall be blessed. For you first... God raised up his, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one from you, uh, every one of you from your wicked ways. And this ends the second uh, great apostolic sermon uh, that was given to us by Peter, um, definitely imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit um, as he brings this, this power to uh, the people that needed it. So, like I was saying, Peter is definitely bringing, uh, bringing the cross as central focus. You can see that from the sermon. Um, and there are a lot of the same elements that we see from the first sermon and the second sermon. Obviously, he's speaking to the Jewish people. He's speaking to individuals that need to have this message uh, of, uh, of restoration and salvation and conviction. Um, he's, he's going hard. He's not going soft. He's not telling them, well, it's okay. Your sin is not that bad. You can keep doing what you're doing. No, he simply says, dude, you don't listen to me. You don't hear these words. Um, you're going to die and go to hell. You're going to be utterly destroyed. Um, this is not a good plan. It's not. This is a turn or burn kind of sermon, um, and it's an important that we have it. Um, this is a stronger appeal um, than the first one, and it focuses quite a bit on the response. Um, and so this follows that same format. So you got basically six elements in this message that's similar to the previous one. And um, you have the address, who is he speaking to? Ye men of Israel, don't you see this? Um, he's uh, looking at the connection. Uh, he's, he's looking to correct the false assumptions. You see that in the beginning as he says, you guys are looking at this guy that was raised. And just like they thought that the apostles were drunk when they were speaking in tongues, now they're looking at it and they're saying, we didn't do this, right? It's not under our power or our piety that caused this man to be uh, uh, to be. Uh, healed of his uh, of his affliction. Um, this is all on the name of God. So he's correcting false assumptions. Um, there's also the reference to God's glorification of Jesus, and he's drawing the contacts be, uh, uh, contrast between the death, uh, burial, uh, death and burial of Jesus Christ, and then the resurrection of Jesus. and And that resurrection was based upon uh, God's power to glorify uh, the Son. And then the final thing is the appeal for repentance. Um, that he gives that final repentance. So this is the formula that uh, Peter lays out for his sermons 
and for future sermons that are preached. It's, it's a very similar format that we see oftentimes that preachers use. Now, we don't break it down into those six elements. Sometimes we'll have three of those elements, but you almost always have the, 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 the address, who we're speaking to. You have, um, uh, you have the, the concept of, of, of the meat of the sermon. Like in this case, it's the uh, glorification of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then the, the call for repentance or action after. And so that's basically the, the three-point kind of sermon that you have. Peter is, is bringing it out. And so in verses 12 through 16, we have, um, this is a word that, I'm, I'll put it up on the screen for you guys. It's called a, a kerygma. It's a Greek word that is used to, um, uh, is applied to this type of message. It's a, what I like to call a proto a gospel message or a, a primitive gospel message. It's like, this is the essence, right? It's like, take the gospel message and all that it is and just boil it down into a little tiny ball in its essence and say, this is it, right? This is the nugget. This is the most important things. You know, you have to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, understand that you're a sinner, understand you can't save yourself, and understand you need to repent and God will forgive you, right? Um, and it's that repentance and then the acceptance of the gift and, and all that stuff. And now we've broken this out. We've expanded this. We've given it more life. But that's the that's, that's the nugget. That's the nutshell. That's the kerygma, if you will, the primitive or proto-gospel message in its infant form. Now, Peter and the rest of the apostles, they unpack that because it's obviously tightly woven. And, and so you've got to peel back the layers and make it bigger in future um, messages and, and, and preaching points. And it's, of course, in their epistles, the letters they're writing to the first century church. Um, but that's the nugget of it, right? And verses th 13 and 15, um, and that's uh, that's verses 12 and 16, right? That's uh, the kerygma. And then the verses in between, 13 through 15, sort of give the reasons why uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And we see that like in 13, he's talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And this is one of the first times we have this word being used of Jesus as a servant. Um, it's a powerful word, but it, in some people's mind, when we say the word servant, we automatically think, well, he's a servant, right? Um, I'm a servant of, of God. That doesn't mean that I'm the Messiah. And uh, it's sort of a, a, I guess, in some people's minds, it could be a demotion. I mean, he's the son of God, right? But he's also the servant of God. Um, and I think that this is a, we'll never understand it fully, but this is a really good picture of the interplay between how God, the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all work together in union. Um, and how Jesus always portrayed himself as the servant of God. Every time Jesus is speaking about it, he goes, I'm not saying what I'm what I'm saying, right? He says, every word I say, every action I do, I do because God told me to do it. He is the perfect example of a perfect sonship, right? Perfect obedience to the Father. That's what he is. So he is the perfect quintessential um, uh, servant. He is the servant that all people aspire to be. Um, he was obedient even unto death and death on the cross, according to the scripture. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit's role is to glorify both Jesus and God the Father. Um, he said, The Holy Spirit, when speaking of himself, he says, I don't speak of myself, I only speak um, of the Son. And, and the Son is here to, um, to, to point towards the Father. The Father is there pointing towards the Son, and, and he is, uh, uh, he's also working with the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this concept of the Trinity being a dance, a beautiful dance that's so filled with love and interplay of the Holy Spirit, 
um, the Son and the Father dancing in perfect harmony and union together. And the, the act of salvation is that, one, that, that the, the Trinity is so locked in this loving, glorifying, beautiful dance where each one is, is seeking the other's ultimate best and yet they're still unified. And then in the midst of all this dance, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit reach out and say, come on, come on, join us in this dance of love. We want to share our love that we have between each other with you. Wow. Think about that for a minute. That's a powerful invitation. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit want you and me, you, to join them on the dance floor, to be one with that dance, to experience that overflow of love that is heaped out and poured upon the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Isn't that a beautiful picture of what salvation is supposed to be? Maybe you've not looked at it that way before. Maybe you should. Let's continue. So, you have that beautiful picture there. And uh, so as the as it goes on, uh, Paul, or Peter, sorry, <laughs> I told you I'm going to do that all the time. Peter and Paul, I get them mixed up all the time. Um, but Peter then uh, uh, sort of applies some things, right? And he starts throwing the levels of conviction down upon uh, the people. Uh, look what it says there. It says, you disowned um, the Holy One the righteous one. There are three new terms that are applied to Jesus in this in this chapter. One of them is the Holy One of God, the Righteous One of God, and then the other one is the, the New American Standard says the Prince of Life. That word there for prince is archegos in Greek, and it actually means author or founder. It's, it's a rare word in, in, in all of Koine Greek. It's only applied a few times, and one of those ways that it's applied is the hero of the city. It's the idea that a hero of the city was the founder of that city. It's the originator of that city. Um, and that term is now being brought forward and referring to life. And so you see how the contrast is being played out. That Peter is saying, you chose a murderer, thus taking on his sin. So now you have murdered and chosen a murderer. You are a people of murder, right? This is your sin. You have murdered the originator, the author, the initiator of life itself. Wow. I mean, it sort of brings that whole first chapter of, of John back into play. You know, it says, in the beginning was God, and the God, or in, the, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was, um, and the Word was, uh, was God and was with God, and then it says that all things were created through the Word, and, and, and He was the Word of life, He was the breath of life, He was, I mean, all those beautiful pictures that John sort of weaves in. Now, we know this, this, this past, this book was written before John, um, but it does sort of bring those echoes out, right? And he says, you guys are murderers, you chose a murderer, and you killed the guy who created life and he's he's here to give you new life right wow you know that if that's not convicting i don't know what is so um he says the holy one the author or prince of life the righteous one this is the one you disowned this is the one you chose a murderer for and then he goes on in verse 16 he says and this is where it gets a little weird the way the greek is constructed here the new american standard has uh has uh, put it out as um, as good as close as they can to a word to word um, translation, but it does come out a little awkward in its construction. Um, it says here, he says on the basis of faith in his name. So, okay, 
Does that mean that we're talking about the faith of the man that was healed? No. Uh, we're talking about the Peter and John's faith, their belief, their inherent belief in who Jesus was, his authority, everything. It's their faith that they commanded this man to walk, okay? So you got to get that understandable because some people like to say that, that, that all you need is have faith. I've actually had individuals um, in my in my early days in ministry, I, I was a part-time minister and I worked still in the healthcare field and I specialized in quadriplegics and paraplegics in home care. And those are the patients that I took care of. And I had this young man who was, he was 17 years old. He had broken his neck in a football accident um, and he was paralyzed from basically, well, top of his shoulders down and 16 years old in a wheelchair the rest of his life. And he had not been living for God. His mother was a strong Christian woman, prayed for him every day. And this accident happened and it turned his life around, obviously. No longer was he the football star. Now he was the uh, wheelchair bound uh, paraplegic, quadriplegic. And he did get back to the Lord. He did get back to faith. And he went every Sunday uh, to a church. And his pastor at the time, and I don't agree with this, told him that the only reason why he's not walking is because he didn't have enough faith. And so this, this this young man came every Sunday. And, and on Monday morning when I would see him, he would say, and, and he, I'd walk in, the, in, the, in his bedroom to take care of him. And, and he'd say, Al, I'm still in the chair today. I don't have enough faith. Maybe next Monday. Maybe next Monday, right? And it just hurt my heart, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to. Uh, we had lots of conversations, but I didn't want to rip apart his pastor. Um, but I just don't believe that um, that our faith is the most important component. I'm not saying it's not a component, but it's not the most important component. The most important component of of healing, whether it's soul healing, emotional healing, mental healing, physically heal, physical healing, the most important component is Jesus Christ. Um, he heals when he wants to at his will and his whim, not whim, his motivation, right? It's his desire because his goal is to bring us where he wants to be. And sometimes we can be more good in our sick bed, in our deathbed, in our wheelchair for the kingdom of God than we can be walking around. In this case, this man was more effective for growing the kingdom of God by being able to walk than he was lying at the gate crippled. And so he was healed. It was the faith of Peter and John that allows it to happen. Let's move on. Um, God raised him the, from the, oh, no, sorry, um, verse 16. It was faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. This is how we know this man was healed because of the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, um, which has strengthened him who you now see and the faith which comes through him. And the New American Standard has the word him capitalized so that you and I know that the him there is Jesus, right? And so whom you see and know and the faith which comes through him, through Jesus has given him small h the parable the, the 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 crippled man, um, uh, given him the crippled man this purple perfect health that's in the presence of you all. Okay, it's important that you get that out and, and and tease that stuff out so you can see who is talking about who. What are we really talking about? We're talking about the faith of Peter and John invoking the name of Jesus Christ so that the, the, the crippled man could walk. And the people that are watching this sermon know now beyond a shadow of a doubt, this man is jumping, praising, singing, and knows Jesus Christ has done this because of the power and the name and the authority of Jesus. Um, and then that is that. And then he goes on to says, and now brethren, let's get back to you, right? 
Here's the reason why. Here's the uh, here's the here's the effective proof of what I'm about to say. Now let's get to your sin. You are murderers. You chose a murderer, and you sent the for the author and finisher of of salvation to the cross because you couldn't handle it. You have chosen. Now you need to do something about it. You were ignorant. You didn't realize what you're doing. Jesus said that on the cross. He says, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." Um, you're ignorant, but we know one thing. If you've ever gotten a speeding ticket and you sit there and that officer comes up to you and said, Hey, do you know how fast you were going? Um, and you may turn to him and you may lie. You may tell the truth. And you can say, No, officer, I don't know how fast I was going. Uh, because you don't want to give away information, right? Um, and he's going to say, Well, you were doing 45 and 35 mile an hour zone. And you're going to say, Oh, officer, I didn't know that the speed limit had changed. And he's going to look at you and say, ignorance to the law is no excuse, boy. <laughs> Sorry about the accent. <laughs> because that's the truth, though. Ignorance to the law is no excuse. Just because you're ignorant of the law doesn't make you less or more guilty. Um, it doesn't change it. It doesn't give you an excuse not to be bound by the law. And so they may have been ignorant of the fact that they crucified the Messiah. It doesn't matter. His blood is still on their hands, and they need to do something about it. His blood is on your hands. His blood is on my hands. We need to do something about it. What we do is we accept that blood that was shed for us and say, you died so that we can be, have new life. You might notice that we've changed locations. I am no longer in my office. We're now in the armchair again. And part of that reason is, is that the battery died on my uh, laptop, so we have to finish our video here uh, so that uh, we can get it uh, where it needs to be. <clears throat> the last thing that we were talking about a moment ago was the fact that uh, the blood of Christ is truly on not just the hands of the Jews, but also the hands of, of Gentiles as well. And just because the Gentiles were ignorant of the law doesn't give them an excuse uh, for this, for the culpability in this, in this instance. So Peter's sermon is not just talking to the Gentiles, although at that moment, at that time, or to the Jews, but at that moment and at that time, he was speaking directly to the Jewish people because in all reality, most of the people that were in, involved in that discussion were the same ones that were involved in the decision that said, we have no king but Caesar, but Caesar and give us Barabbas rather than Jesus. So, um, as we uh, sort of bring everything down back to a to a final part of this, you notice that Peter then turns to the decision, right? So he has a path, he has a plan that he is um, going forward with this. And in in verses nineteen and twenty, you see that um, that pan, that plan laid out. In the other verses, seventeen and eighteen, he basically um, uh, tells them that 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 Jesus was. The whole plan was always that he was going to suffer. And the prophets talked about this. Moses talked about this. Um, Samuel and the rest of the prophets talked about it. You guys should know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Messiah has come. And then he gives them the, the so what, right? So the, the so what about this message? Big deal. It's just another guy that died. No, he wasn't. He was the Messiah. And because the Messiah died, now you have to make a decision. As we mentioned earlier, he either is or isn't the Messiah. Either is or either was or wasn't crucified. Either um, did or did not rise, or rise from the grave. And if he did all these things and said all these things and was all these things, then that requires us to make a decision. We have to decide, do we wish to accept it or reject it? If we accept it, 
then we have the opportunity to walk into the kingdom of heaven as a child of God. If we choose to reject it, we get to walk into uh, hell as a uh, unrepentant sinner who chose our sin over the Savior, just like the Jews that were sitting there that day. And we see that that's exactly what happens. So there are three things that would happen if, and the three things that does happen and would happen if the Jews actually accepted Christ as their Savior um, as a nation or as individuals. Now, as a nation, there are some things that has impact, um, and as an individual, it has others. So the three things are, that, number one, your sins are going to be forgiven. Number two, you get times of refreshing will begin. And number three, the restoration of the kingdom. So these are the three things that Peter is talking about. Now remember, this is the proto-version of the gospel. Many of them are, are still in that same mode that Peter was when he was on the hill. And he said to Jesus, now is the time. He said, Lord, is now the time that you are going to reform your kingdom, Right. And so that's still in the back of Peter's mind as he's doing this. Now realize that the Holy Spirit is communicating through him. He's educating him. He's bringing these things to remembrance, to his mind. He's understanding more and more as, uh, as the Holy Spirit is working with him. But sometimes it doesn't matter how good the carpenter is. Um, sometimes the wood you're using is just bad wood. And I'm not trying to say Peter was a, bad, was a piece of bad wood, but Peter had a long way to go. Um, he wasn't where the Holy Spirit needed him to be, and uh, he was bringing him there. And so this proto-gospel that's being put out is, 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 is basically the infancy of the gospel message as it's being presented to the church. And he's talking about that restoration, and he still has that kingdom mindset, which we should have as well. He said the sins are forgiven. Obviously, he's talking about national Israel's sins are forgiven, um, but he's also talking about individuals. That, that the idea of the sins being forgiven is something that all of us need to understand. Jesus talked quite a bit about the forgiveness of sins and the fact that we are slave to our sin nature, slave to our sin, but he offers us new life and freedom from the slavery of sin, hell, death, and the grave. And so with Peter now drawing all that together and linking it into one thing, He's now telling the nation of Israel that's in front of him, the children of Israel that's in front of him, that if they are willing to accept Jesus as the Messiah, he, the sins are going to be forgiven, including the sin of murder, of choosing this murderer and killing the Prince of Life. Now, the next thing that's going to happen is something called times of refreshing. The Greek word there is anaphesis, anaphesis. Um, trying to pronounce that. I'm not a real good Greek pronouncer. And it's one phrase that means times of refreshing. It's um, an odd word, but it refers to a lot of things in the Old Testament. It, it, it has echoes to some other stuff. Um, but in particular, for those that were listening to this, who had been who would have read the Old Testament in uh, the Septuagint, which would have been in Greek, they would have recognized this word, and they would have um, naturally brought the correlation to he had already talked about Moses back to the the, um, the book of Exodus. And the same passage there is being referenced to that time after the plague of frogs was was ended. And there was this 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 time of reprieve, this this time of um, refreshment, um, as in many ways they're getting ready for the next plague, although they didn't know another plague was coming. But it was it was there. And so 
that's sort of in the mind. That's the idea here behind that word anaphyxis. And, <clears throat> and then the final thing was the restoration of the kingdom. And this deals with two things. Obviously, he's a Jew. Obviously, he's speaking to Jewish people who have rejected the Messiah. And with the kingdom understanding, and we know that <clears throat> the nation of Israel has been under judgment um, since this time Jesus pronounced it. He said their eyes are going to be blinded. Um, they won't see. Um, they won't understand. Individuals may, but national Israel is not going to be in a place where they can accept the Messiah as he is until all until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're still in that time of, gen, of the Gentiles. We're during that time when this idea of the, the times of refreshing and renewing, this is the time when the Holy Spirit is freely moving throughout the world. He is developing the bride of Christ into something that is going to be truly acceptable. And at this time, the nation of Israel is sort of on hold. Their mission is still the same. Their mandate is still the same. Salvation has never changed. Salvation has always been through Jesus Christ depending upon what part of the cross you're looking at. For Abraham and his descendants, they were looking forward to a cross that would come, to a Messiah that would come. For those of us that live after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we look back at the cross as that pivotal moment. It just depends upon our perspective. The cross is in the middle, Old Testament, New Testament um, concepts. So I know that's um, a basic uh, uh, teaching. Don't get hung up on it. We can talk about it later at another day. The most important thing is this restoration of the kingdom. This is the time, twofold. One, the restoration of national Israel when the uh, literal throne of David will have literally Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, sitting on it and ruling. That will happen in the millennial kingdom. That will happen um, after uh, many of the the parts of uh, Revelation take place. And that hasn't happened yet. And so they're still looking, national Israel is still looking for that restoration of the kingdom. But there's also another term that can be used, because a lot of times you see in Scripture a duality of purpose. Uh, Like, for instance, when a prophet gives a prophecy to a people at the moment, but that prophecy also has messianic import. So in this case, the restoration of national Israel also has a dual function where it talks about restoration of the kingdom which is the idea of salvation that can only be found through Jesus and part and parcel of that salvation is a hope for eternal life the the restoration of a kingdom that we've never known but the Jews did have this in their historical narrative with David and Solomon being on the throne the, the kingdom of David we have a promise of heaven which is the what we would consider the restoration of a kingdom like I said that we've never had So that's sort of the elements that you have here in that final uh, discussion that uh, Peter is having with the nation, with the children of Israel that's right in front of him. And he's basically saying, repent and return. Those are two words that are incredibly important that he uses. The Greek words there are are pretty powerful. So this is in, in verse 19. He talks about repent and return. That's metaneo, repent which is mean to turn completely from your sins and like walking one direction, turning and walking the opposite direction. So repent, uh, metaneo, that's the Greek word for that. And then the other word is, um, <laughs> uh, let me see if I can get this right, um, epitrio, epitrio, close to that. Anyway, uh, and that particular word is the word return. It means to turn back to God, return to God. The nation of Israel had Jesus. They had God. 
they had everything they needed. They chose not to accept the Messiah. And so Peter is asking them to repent of their sins, metaneo, and then turn back to God. Turn back to the God that they had rejected. And this is where we are now. This is the message that we have. This is an evangelical, um, this is uh, uh, about salvation. You know, you are sitting there now and you have to make a decision. Like I've said through this entire message, either he is the Messiah or he's not. He either is offering eternal life or he doesn't. And I believe that the evidence that Scripture puts out and um, the testimony of believers who have lived um, a life of distinction with Christ from the day they accepted him to the day they passed on is testimony to me of the efficacy of the salvation message that Jesus presented. He came to seek and save those that are lost. You're either lost or you're not. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior in December 2nd, 1984, and I have been walking with him ever since. It's been a, an amazing 30-something years, and I have seen God do phenomenal things, and it's based upon my faith in him and the continual testimony of what God is doing daily to affect a closer walk with me, that I can say this without a shadow of a doubt, that the single most important decision that anyone, you included, can ever make is the uh, decision of what you're going to do with King Jesus. He either is the King, he either is the Messiah, he either is God or he's not. He can't, there's no middle ground. You need to decide if you're going to follow him. And if you do decide, then you do, right? And every aspect of your life needs to flow from that point. You either receive the grace, and then, then, then you are now the grace bearer. You are the kingdom people. You are the freedom people. And your life is dedicated to doing what God has told you to do, which is to be a kingdom person, a freedom-giving person, a grace-filled person, or not. So if you're watching this and you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, my only, my only and, and, and sincerest request is that you will deal with that now. If you're watching this and you don't know if you're saved, send me a private message. Send a message to uh, First Baptist Church. Left, leave, a, leave a message on our, on our answering machine. Uh, you can reach out to um, any number of people that are connected with our church. We're not the only ones that can tell you about this. You can look at our website. We have uh, the plan of salvation clearly written there, next steps. But I can promise you this, if you're watching this video and you are not saved, then there is at least one person in your life that's been praying for you and you know who they are. No one comes to know Christ completely in a vacuum. Well, maybe there is a few people, but I would have to say that if you're watching this to the very end, that you are not one of those people that's come to Christ in a vacuum. There is somebody in your life that's been praying diligently for you, and you know who it is. Reach out to that person. And they, I can already tell you, will have the words of life ready to go. Um, so that being said, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is the day of salvation. If you do, and you've already made the decision, how are you living out a life of a grace-filled kingdom person on a mission to free those that are lost? Because part of what we do when we accept that he's the Messiah, the King, and the Lord of the universe, and Lord over our lives, is we bow our will and say, Jesus, give me my orders. I am your servant. And just like you were the living embodiment of what it means to be obedient to God, 
we want to be obedient as well as we follow your example. What do you want me to do? I'll leave you with that. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Armchair Theologian. And I leave you with this. What are you doing to advance the kingdom and following your Lord and Savior's commands? Thank you.